this is Rumble, and this is Michael Moore. Welcome to my podcast. Uh, today, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge the underwriters of today's episode, and that is Netflix and their film, American Factory, directed by Julia Reichert and Stephen Bogner. In addition to its Oscar nomination, it's won many awards, the Los Angeles Film Critics uh, Best Documentary of the Year, Directors Guild Best Documentary of the Year, and, and many others. It's the story of uh, an abandoned General Motors factory in Ohio and how a Chinese billionaire comes in to save the day. It's fascinating. It's full of twists and turns, and I think you'll really like it. I thank the filmmakers for supporting this podcast, and I thank Netflix for supporting my voice. And now let's get on with the show. This is Rumble with Michael Moore. I am Michael Moore, and welcome uh, to this episode of our podcast. And I would like to welcome uh, uh, here uh, to our, our, our little endeavor. We've been doing this now for, I don't know, about five weeks. We have with us today uh, Academy Award winner. Um, although that's not really what I think of you when I first think of you. <laughs> oh, who's coming over today? Well, Academy Award winner Tim Robbins. <laughs> no, but Tim, uh, Tim Robbins is actually here. Uh, you know him across the board for so many things from Bull Durham. Was that your first big film? Yeah, uh, that was the film that made it okay for me not to audition anymore. <laughs> oh, that must have felt really good. It was great. <laughs> so, Bull Durham, the uh, director uh, and I believe writer of Dead Man Walking. Yes. Uh, and one of <laughs> a cult classic and a favorite of mine, uh, Bob Roberts, about uh, uh, a particular politician and a campaign and everything. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but also, um, one of the main reasons that you are here today is I want to talk to you about this uh, theater troupe that you founded and um and the importance of live theater which is more and more being lost the drama classes are gone from many of our high schools if there are still plays it's because a teacher is taking it on as an after school project um but it's not not uh, you know being really taught anymore and i'm uh I was asked to be on this advisory board of an uh, organization uh, that the Arthur Miller uh, Foundation set up. So, and uh, it's basically to try to get to save theater in our mm. public schools. So, you went to uh, public school where? Here, right? Here, in New York City. New York City. I went to Stuyvesant High School. You went to Stuyvesant High School. Yeah, and as a matter of fact, a drama teacher saved my life. Uh, you know, I was uh, not doing well. In my first year, uh, it was a math and science specialty school. I wasn't particularly adept at either. And uh, he told me to get involved in a play. And uh, it was the sole reason I came to school. It was the only way I was able to f feel good about myself because I, I seemed to have a talent for that. And um, A talent that you didn't know that you had? No. And um, you see, that that's the tragedy of, of canceling arts programs in high schools is that oftentimes it's the the thing that is the tether for an, mm. uh, a kid. Right. The, the reason why they, they, they can still uh, motivate themselves to go to school. And um, dropout happens because people just disconnect completely. And I was almost disconnected completely. So and, we, we don't know what would have happened to you. Well, I know what happened to a lot of friends in my neighborhood. Yeah, you know, and that 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 dropped out, and you know, 
that's not a that's not a pretty right. pretty story. Had you stayed in your math and science program, what kind what kind of awful math or science thing would society have as a result of what, <laughs> of what you may have invented or given us? I had a or, physics teacher that that helped me out through a test once, and he said, "Please just promise me that you'll never become a <laughs> physicist." I said, "I swear, I right. swear." Um, yeah, we do programs ourselves. The Actors Gang does programs in high schools and uh, right. also middle schools and grade schools uh, do arts programs uh, in f- uh, 14 uh, public schools in Los Angeles. Um, wow. For oh, that reason, great. because yeah. they have cut them. And uh, it seems to be the first cut they make is arts, yes. arts programs. Arts go first. Right. It's, a, it's a terrible tragedy. I was, I've been working with them. Um, turnaround arts uh, in the past few years and they've shown incredible changes in academic scores when they reintroduce arts into public schools mm, mm. Um, it's it's uh, it's a no-brainer really um, it, it, and if you really if you really want to know um, whether arts works or not look at any private school mm. any private school has they, vigorous arts programs right right they know there's four or five plays and musicals a year yeah. <laughs> at, the, at the private schools. Yeah. No, boy, that's yeah, that's a wow. That's a very that's a very good way to look at it. So so um, so you got the bug in high school. Uh, did, were you in a high school play then? Yeah, uh, I actually directed my first play oh, wow. when I was a sophomore, and I did one as a junior and as a senior. Um, I uh, had been working at a theater uh, in Greenwich Village called the Theater for the New City, and that's how I uh, I started to. to to figure out that I could do it. Right, right. So after high school, you figured it out. I went to college, went to State University in New York at Plattsburgh, oh. up near the Canadian border. Right. Uh, for the, two years. The fighting Plattsburghers. <laughs> the Cardinals. <laughs> that, they actually have a team there. Yeah. Oh, okay. oh yeah, a very right. good hockey team so, up there. Oh, um, SUNY Plattsburgh. SUNY Plattsburgh. Do you play hockey? I, I play, but not for them. Yeah. And, um, and then I uh, transferred to UCLA. And uh, first, I, I, I lived for a year in California. At the time, uh, college was still affordable, and residents uh, paid a lot less. And so I went out and lived for a year, established residency, worked in a warehouse for a year, and realized I never wanted to work in a warehouse again. And uh, when I got back to school, I had a ton of enthusiasm and drive. And um, by the end of the, my time at UCLA, I had found a group of um, compatriots, and we started this group called the Actors Gang. Right. Okay. So that's that grew out of that. Were they all fellow students at UCLA, or are they just? Uh, yes. Other? Yeah, they were. Oh, all of you. Okay. Yeah. Well, there was one that was not, but he was always around. And um, we were one, one thing that unified us was we were all uh, had a, a affinity for punk rock music. Uh, we wanted to kind of infuse that same energy onto the stage. And so we were kind of the outcasts of our department. And so we found a way to create our own work in UCLA, which right. was very um, welcoming to that, I must say. Uh, it was a really uh, a, a great time to be there. Had great teachers and encouraging uh, their students to, to create, to, to write plays, to direct mm. plays. Had a thing called the Noon Miracle where you could anyone could do a, a play at noon on Friday. And so... Um, this is what your group, the Actors Gang group. So, yeah, yeah. we grew out of that. And right. we... Uh, Anybody could do anything? And, I mean, I just, if I just showed up at noon, I could... You had to sign up for it. Okay. But you, it was your slot. So you bring bring whatever you got. Whatever it is. It I was... It was perform anything. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And that's how I did my first play there. 
uh, it was called Plastic Flowers. But after, uh, so we did this play called Ubu the King uh, at UCLA and then um, brought it out into LA and we found a theater, performed it at midnight because we couldn't afford to rent the theater. So we just shared the space with another place. So we'd tear down their set, put up our set, perform it at midnight on this uh, dark street in Hollywood. And uh, it became this huge success. And we ran for six months, and that's how the Actors Gang started. And then you were off. Yeah. Um, and when did you start writing? Was it during this time, too, that uh, uh, while you were in college? Yes. Yeah, I had a great uh, playwriting teacher named Gary Gardner, and he uh, encouraged uh, new voices. And uh, I had uh, three plays produced at UCLA, one mm. at One X. Mm. So... Um, Okay, so then, so where's the where's the transition from that to how we came to know you? What, where what was the? <laughs> there must have been some kind of uh, death valley that you had to walk through. Um, uh, yeah, I graduated uh, and was financing the plays of the Actors Gang by delivering pizzas for a, a place called Jacopo's in Beverly Hills. And and you know, listen, if you're going to deliver pizzas anywhere, deliver it in a rich neighborhood because there's some pretty good tips out there. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so uh, uh, I got uh, I won this uh, competition when I was a senior there uh, called the O'Brien Awards, and I got an agent out of that. And mm. it took a while for me to figure it out but eventually I got cast in a, uh, a, a new show they were doing called St. Elsewhere I was on the mm -hmm. first four episodes of that playing a, a, a terrorist actually oh wow when, and were you killed off or uh, I, I, I don't know if I should give it away Mike yeah I think <laughs> spoiler alert 20 years 30 years yeah, later I, yeah they killed me they, they killed the terrorist of course yeah okay, good or did yeah. you kill yourself no I was killed you were killed yeah okay yeah. Okay, so after St. Elsewhere, then... Uh, I was doing episodics, uh, making a living. Um, but now you're on the radar. Yeah. You know, people in L.A. are seeing you. Yeah, and, and I started doing movies. and um, But every time I would do uh, a job, I, I would tell my agents, I, I need three months off. I'm not, I don't want to go out and auditions. I'm doing a play, which they thought was crazy. They had a little bit of a contempt for theater right. <laughs> in L.A. <clears throat> right. uh, but I, I viewed it as a, a laboratory, a way to keep growing uh, and, and to start writing and directing. Um, and so... Uh, so the Actors Gang maintains itself during all this time. You yes. are, it's always there. Yes. And you can participate in it whenever you want Yes, to. and it's a, a great way to stay sane in a town like Los Angeles oh, because... Yeah. You know, it can get into a kind of uh, an actor in particular can get into this pattern of um, you just yearning for a superficial role because you want to stay busy as an actor. Right. And I've, I've, I didn't particularly want to do that. I wanted to create my own things. And um, so eventually I, I got lucky with uh, a couple of good roles in good films and eventually uh, got Bull Durham, which uh, kind of hmm. launched me. How did you get that? Went in an audition for Ron Shelton. Um, I was also uh, auditioning for John Sales at that time and got offered a role in Eight Men Out, his baseball movie. Oh, that's interesting, movie. yeah. And I had loved Matwan, and I, you right. know, I, uh, so it was a real you know, choice I had to make, and my agent convinced me to do Bull Durham, which I think was the right thing to do, even though I, I, I would have loved to have been in Matt One. Right. Uh, I mean, in Eight, Eight Men Out. Out yeah. And uh, I went out uh, 
and had to I, I did well in the audition and then ron said we, we need to do one more audition you got to come in and throw we got to see if you can play yeah. ball. <laughs> <laughs> and luckily i've been playing baseball all my life and uh i'd never pitched before but i had played third base and mm-hmm. you have to have a pretty good arm that's at third base. kind of like pitching right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah but i have a gun right and so that was uh, a real joy to you know go down to north carolina and and um put on a baseball uniform right. and pretend to be a, a, a right. pro right. player. Right. This is like one of my childhood fantasies come true. I used right. to, I used to dress up as a, in my, you know, little Met uniform and listen to the radio. We didn't have a television when I was growing up and I'd listen to the radio of the Met games and act them out when I was a kid. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Hey, can I tell you a quick Ron Shelton story? So Ron Shelton is the writer and, and director of Bull Durham yeah. and, uh, and other, um, uh, uh great films. So this is like, I don't know when this was, 1984, 1985. I'm sitting at my, um, I, I ran a little newspaper in Flint, Michigan, called The Flint Voice. And so I'm sitting there. It was in an old house. Um, it's a summer. It's, the door's open. There's a screen door. I was sitting here and knock, and I look up. And there's Ron Shelton and uh, the director, uh, the New Zealand director, Roger Donaldson. Yeah. They're standing on my porch. Hmm. Like, I don't know. And he introduces himself and I'm like, and of course I'm, you know, at that point I haven't made any films yet. I'm just, you know, but I, I went to every, I went to see everything and I drove to Ann Arbor constantly to watch all the foreign films and documentaries and, and they come in and they tell me that, and this is when it was very, very, very bad times in, in places like Flint with the auto industry beginning now to close 30% unemployment in Flint. I mean, really, really awful. And a lot of people leaving. And uh, Ron said that uh, I've decided to make a modern day Grapes of Wrath. And, um, and the story will essentially will it'll take that, the basis of Grapes of Wrath, but follow a family from Flint moving to Texas or to California or whatever uh, to try and survive. And uh, um, he was gonna write and produce it and Roger was gonna direct it. And, uh, and he said, do you, want, do you have an archives of your paper here? Can we just sit here for a few hours and just read about Flint? Wow. I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> and they did, they, they spent the day there. Um, they gave me $10 at the end for a subscription. <laughs> <laughs> and then they left. The film never got made. That's and too bad. I would yeah, like you know, to wouldn't have that have been the yeah. yeah. But I will say that if if I were to think about the early early thoughts of making Roger and Me, which came out in eighty nine, which I didn't start making till eighty six or eighty seven, it was that it was that them there in my living room, essentially of this office, uh, telling me that this that actually people would love to see this story. Wow. But I, w- I didn't know how to make a movie, and I, but eventually I thought, you know, I could make the, the nonfiction version. That's so cool. Of this in a way. Yeah, it was very cool. So anyway, sorry to digress with that, but uh, um, it's just not every day that the uh, writer and director of Bull Durham shows up on your doorstep. Yeah. In Flint. Amazing. Michigan. Amazing. So you mentioned about sitting around or, or having to deal with the, whatever the stress is of that next role and and being offered roles in crappy crap stuff mm-hmm. that you don't want to do so so you seem to be at least in the well actually through all your career not, i don't want to say picky but you just aren't in five films a year just to be in films and pick up a paycheck is that a fair uh yeah <clears throat> i mean early on i did whatever i could to pay the rent but once i had a choice uh i um was more discerning um but you always had the actors gang you always had your collective of 
and and how, I call it a collective, but actually, how is how is it run? How 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 do did you guys start out as um, you know a a, a a cell of a communist organization? <laughs> <laughs> or oh, that's the theater wing of the Communist Party USA. Okay, let them do their little plays. Uh, no, it was uh, it was just a bunch of young men and women that wanted to do um, theater that was talking about the world and uh, was you know it was the Reagan years and we uh, were scared and we wanted to mm-hmm. answer that and uh, wanted to tell stories that reflected the uh, concerns of the people that we knew and right. and society itself and so uh, it, you know we started to tour um, with the Actors Gang in 89 uh, with a play called Carnage a Comedy which was about televangelism Mm. We went to the public theater, and we went as the U.S. representative to the Edinburgh uh, Theater Festival. Right, things started to when I when I got more famous, uh, I was able to um, pay to have a warehouse tran- um, transformed into a theater, and uh, we had that theater for about ten years, and then the rents got jacked up, and we found this beautiful theater in uh, Culver City, California, where we are where we are still. Mm-hmm. The um, you mentioned the Reagan years and this a lot of the the work and the writing you did for the plays coming out of these concerns. Where where did your politics uh, begin? Where did what did you have parents that were progressive and and uh, progressive Catholics? Um, oh, oh. so um, my dad was a folk singer. Um, he um, came to Greenwich Village in 1961. Um, and uh, from California Mm. Uh, my parents had met at UCLA Mm. and they were both in the marching band my my mother was uh, (laughs) playing flute and my dad was the drum major you know, you could have gotten into the marching band at UCLA on a legacy. Uh, just, I'm just saying, you, yeah. you didn't do that. Though. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't yeah. play anything. So. Okay. Um, so, so your dad uh, was a folk singer. He comes to the village here, and he gets embraced by a community. Which he told me this story before he died, and it was really moving. He said he was uh, invited to a um, a living wake for Cisco Houston, mm. who was Woody Guthrie's friend. Right. And uh, he was dying, and they were doing, uh, they wanted him in the room, and all of the folk singers um, sang songs for Cisco. Wow. And uh, my dad was invited by Ronnie Gilbert from mm-hmm. the Weavers. Right. And uh, he, he, sa- he was crying when he told me this story, and he said, you know, it was just, it was, uh, I, I was in, I, it was just this moment where I realized this community uh, was open to someone that wasn't famous that they didn't know mm-hmm. but they knew had a love of folk music and so um from there he uh started um singing and became a part of this group called the high women mm-hmm. who uh, were pretty famous in the early 60s had a couple uh top uh, number one hits um, right and uh a group at that time uh, for people maybe who don't remember or if you're younger but if you've heard of peter paul and mary the High Women, um, you know, and the Weavers were a version Kingston of that. Trio, Kingston yeah. Trio from the fifties. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So 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 he was in. Yeah. So yeah. He so he started in, touring with them and put out five albums with them, and um, but his real love was classical music. And after mm-hmm. that ended, he became an actor briefly. Uh, was in a few mu- musicals and then uh, then pursued his passion, which was twentieth century choral music. Uh, you know, if you if you're looking at, at something that 
has uh, less potential for making money. Uh, <laughs> it's, right. It's got to be that. Right. Um, uh, but he, that was something that was an important lesson he taught me, is you have to follow your passion. You have to be true to what your, uh, what your passion is. And so my he, mom was a working woman, and uh-huh. she uh, she was a uh, executive at a publishing firm, and uh, so they you know they brought us up in a very fertile uh, environment in Greenwich Village in the '60s and early '70s. Dangerous at times, uh, a lot of um, ways to fall off the radar. Um, I saw people you know strung out on the streets. Knew uh, that heroin was not something that I wanted to do very early on. Mm. When you see that. Um, and uh, and then uh, raised four children in in uh, a, you know essentially a one bed one bedroom walk up railroad flat. Wow, what yeah. street were you on? King Street. On King Street. King Street between Sixth Avenue and Barrack. Wow. So w- were politics discussed much, or was well, it? Well, uh, my my they. Um, I have two very strong memories. Um, w- one of them was. Uh, my mother waking me up with tears in her eyes and saying that a very important man was killed last night. That uh, was when uh, Martin Luther King was shot. Mm. And uh, I remember that really affected our household. Mm. And then a few years later, uh, she woke me up and she said, I want you to, my sister Adele was at Antioch College at the time. And uh, she, she woke me up and she said, I want you to be very proud of your sister. Um, she was arrested yesterday for protesting the Vietnam War. Mm, wow. And so uh, they had a very uh, progressive um, look on, on uh, life and, and what was going on and uh, had friends that would come over to the apartment um, that were uh, like that. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I was in a Catholic school, you know, and mm. it was that was complicated because the older nuns were... Uh, they were not particularly um, progressive, uh, but the younger nuns were very kind, and I think that had something mm-hmm. to do with Vatican II empowering yes. the the, uh, the women in the church right. to to have their own voice and to go out and seek community and work with the poor. And uh, but when I got into Stuyvesant High School, I got called down to the principal's office, which always meant you were in trouble, right? <laughs> and so I walk the you know the walk of doom down the stair stairs and I go into Sister Mary Roberts office and she says um, "You uh, did you apply to Stuyvesant High School? I said yes I did. She said well you got in and she had this stern look on her face I said alright yeah great she goes you realize that that school is populated mostly by Jews. Oh no Yeah, and I was like yeah so right it's New York City. <laughs> Did this just dawn on her that there were Jews walking around oh, New York City? Oh, man. We had one nun also. That we had <clears throat> wow. uh, you know, one person of color in our class, and she used to make you know, fun of him. And mm. it, it, you know, it was a weird environment because you had this progressive yeah. bohemian culture that Greenwich Village has always possessed. But at the same time, you had thir- second and third generation Italian and Irish that had a lot of racism. Yeah. And uh, we're chasing people out of the neighborhoods. Yeah. And, uh, we're extremely homophobic. And uh, two door, three doors down from where I went to grade school was the Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street. Right. Where right. the whole gay, gay liberation movement started. So you were at what Catholic school then? What was the St. Joseph's. At St. Joseph's. Yeah. 
And so right there, Christopher, right off uh, Waverly Place, Waverly Place and Seventh Avenue Mm -hmm. there. Um, and then, you know, we'd be out for recess and, and, you know, this dude would walk down the street with leather chaps and nipple rings and a Doberman pincher and a whip. And we'd be like, what the hell is that? You know, <laughs> I want that whip. <laughs> that's that's the new world coming. <laughs> right. Right. So but but how great, though. Yeah. To, to yeah. grow up in the middle yeah. of this. Uh, yeah. And my sister to, had to. You weren't going to get that in Dubuque. No, no offense to Dubuque. No, but uh, it please was. Vote, no, please vote February 3rd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> please. Uh, yeah, it was a, a really um, complicated and rich uh, environment to grow up in. I, I, I mentioned earlier the Theater for the New City. The first thing I did there was run Spotlight for a show called The Angels of Light, Gossamer Wings which was this really wild um, show. Uh, they were originally called the Coquettes out in San Francisco and had become a sensation there. And then the, the leader of the group was this guy named uh, George Harris, who was calling himself Hibiscus by this point. Now, George Harris is that blonde kid with the, the sweater putting the flower into the end of the rifle in, in that, that famous Penta- photo. Pentagon protest, yeah, right, and so he went out after that, grew his hair longer, grew a beard, and started doing these wild drag shows. But drag is not really what it was. It was more, fin- it was more, you know, like epic, you know, production numbers from 1930s uh, Hollywood musicals. Um, uh, Nelson Eddy, Jeanette McDonald, you know, but guys pretending to be women. It was, it was, it was so great. It was, and it was, uh, it was a huge hit. Packed houses every night. Uh, I was there because uh, my sisters had worked at that theater, but also because my first girlfriend was George Harris's sister, mm. uh, named Eloise, and so, and she was in the show, and so um, it was this great great community and uh filled with people that were i mean these guys were badass they were you know right they were really tough they were you know they were expressing themselves freely and being who they were way before right uh it was safe right to do that right and it's still not safe in, in, even in new york yeah for because there's always there's always incidents of you know people from outside of town coming in and messing with you know the the people in the village yeah but um no the hate crimes uh here have really in but imagine in, in 1971 having that like you know screw you I, I am who i am and i will live in my own skin yeah i my, my mom my mom used to bring us kids here her sister lived on staten island so we come from flint every summer every other summer uh this would be our we we tell people back in flint that we were summering on staten island and it just sounded very exotic to people there, not really knowing. No offense to Staten Island again, obviously. But um, but in 1971, yes, I, I remember that New York. In fact, that was the first time I was mugged. Uh, it, was in, it was in Times Square uh, in 1971. A guy just came up and just kind of put a nice, I felt the blade up against oh. my back and just wanted my money. And for some stupid reason, I told him I didn't have anyone. I got a wallet, you know, in the back, my back pocket. But he reaches into the other pocket and pulls out a subway map of New York because I don't live here, you know. Right. And he goes, he just looked at me like, what a loser, and he just walked away. That was the <laughs> extent of my, uh, um, I think I'd reached into my other pot, my front pocket by that point and just gave him whatever change I had. Uh, it was like 17 cents or whatever, but 
yeah, so New York at that time was not, but you were living in it. You were living in this yeah. uh, uh, kind of petri dish of humanity. Yeah. yeah, all of it in, in all of its forms and but but yes, hard and difficult and scary at, at some level, but also the the fact that you didn't that you were able to be around all this had to have had this incredible effect on you. Yeah, and by the time I got out into the world when I went up to college up in upstate New York and when I went out to UCLA, I, you know, at first I was like it, this is weird. I thought everyone was like this, you know? <laughs> you don't know when you're a kid. Oh, yeah. You know, and you, you realize, oh, it's a different world out here. Right, right. Now, so when you went out there and, and you were essentially then, you stayed there uh, yeah. in L.A. Yeah. You kept your group, your theater troupe, mm -hmm. act Actors Gang, going mm -hmm. uh, during this time. And, it, and as you became famous, I don't know if other members of the actors group achieved that kind of level of notoriety. I shouldn't say notoriety, but you know what I'm saying. It's, well, yeah, it, uh, we have, we've had quite a few talented people come through. Jack Black started there. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And uh, John Cusack's done some shows that did it. Yeah. Did a couple shows there and uh, um, Helen Hunt and. But were people cool with the fact that you were suddenly, you know, uh, you're in Bull Durham and now you're in this next film and that, and it's like, um, how, how did the sort of collective sort of, uh, food co-op nature of this <laughs> endeavor? Well, it was uh, all good news because it meant that, you know, we could fund a season, right? You know, right. I, I would put the money back into the, into the group. And then I moved back East to raise my family in New York city, uh, after I met Susan and, uh, we had, we had two kids together and, uh, I had a bonus child from previous relationship and uh and so i would run it from afar but i empowered other people to to run the operations to uh, keep it going yeah right um you you won your uh, uh oscar for mystic river god i'm gonna start, start sounding like the actor studio guy <laughs> where's my cards um so tim but uh you worked with uh, clint eastwood Mm -hmm. And and I, did, am I right? Did both you and um, one uh, Sean, you and Sean won yeah. uh, for that movie. Um, and I remember uh, when when you accepted your Oscar and and um, the really nice things you said about Clint Eastwood and and so here's you know somebody who whose politics are not yours or mine, but is also one of the great actors directors of all time. I think it's safe to say that. I mean, it's certainly his his canon of films is you know regardless of of but but how did i'm just curious how how did that work um so by that time he knew who you were and he knew your politics and he actually came to see a couple actors gang shows he did yeah and, yeah. and uh actually hired a few actors from it for future projects um you know i always i i never judge a person based on what other people have written about him or said about him and right and in fact when we well, were because you and i know we've been through that yeah where things are written about us or said or whatever and it's like wow they have no clue who i am yeah and ultimately what's more important is how you treat people right regardless of your politics and clint was so good to his crew uh um everyone felt respected everyone felt valued um, and by the way, we had conversations. This was around the time when they were cooking up the Iraq War, and Clint was against that war. 
Right. And um, so, you know, I don't, you, you, the simple definitions, I, I don't, I, I've long ago abandoned this idea that we have to be tribal. I, I, it's not going to get us anywhere. Right, right. And I'm always looking for ways to reach across to find common ground. And uh, I really respected him and I liked him. And I, I thought he, uh, he did an amazing job with that film. Um, People I've spoken to who have worked on his crews, they love working um, on his films. Hell, you show up at nine in the morning and you're done by two. Yeah, no, no, everybody has dinner. The concept of having dinner with yeah. your family yeah. when you work <laughs> on a movie <laughs> is so like, and, and yet that's, that's how he rolls when he's making a film yeah it's you're you're not putting in a 16 hour day you're not slogging through at two or three in the morning after you've been there since six in the morning and um i guess that's a choice isn't it i guess that's a decision he makes that this is how we're going to do this you know we can do good work but we don't have to kill ourselves right yeah and that's you know i learned a lot from that and as as i learned a lot from you know working with altman uh the respect that he had and the love he had for his uh cast and crew yeah what was that like? What was that like? Amazing. Robert, was, Robert Altman. It was my film school, really. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I asked him at one point, why why me? And he said, well, I've been following your work with the Actors Gang. That's mm. why he, he wanted me to be in the player. Mm. Um, I was cast in the player. I met with him and he said, I want you to do this movie. And then it was, a, you know, the, the financing didn't come through. And I was offered this other movie, a comedy, for a ton of money. And I was pretty low on funds at the time. And uh, I turned it down just with the hope that the player was going to happen. Mm. And um, one month passes, two months pass, and eventually they put together the financing. And then I heard, found out later that Bob had been offered financing with another actor. And mm. had remained... In other words, we'll give you the money if you... Don't use Tim Robbins. <laughs> <laughs> right. And he said, no, I gave him a word. And uh, wow. that's the guy I want. Wow. And so when I was doing the player, I also knew at the time that the financing was coming together for Bob Roberts, which would shoot like three months after we wrapped. Mm -hmm. And so I viewed it as film school. I watched everything. I, and, and Bob... You know, uh, from the very first day I joined the production in pre-production, he had me into his office and sat me down and said, you and me, we're going to rewrite this script. Mm. And he viewed me as a collaborator, which was stunning for me at the time because, you know, I'd been working in writing and directing in, in theater, but, you know, I wasn't really known as a, as a film writer or, right. or director. And uh, to have someone who, by the way, I had seen Nashville when I was in high school and that was the first film I had seen that made me want to do film. Right. And, uh, one of the great films of all time. Incredible. Incredible. And still, still very, very relevant, uh, yeah. to what we're living through. Yeah. And then to have that, uh, hero of yours mm. say yeah. that to you, it, it was incredible shot in the arm for me creatively. It just affirmed so much for me, it gave me the confidence to be able to, to do a film right well that's such a great film um that and bob roberts i mean you you are drawn to satire uh which is always poo-pooed by the money people in the studios or whatever like this will never work people don't get satire they don't like satire but uh but you seem to like it uh, a lot i'm guessing that also is you know part of the actors gang a lot of the things that you guys did over the years are taking 
taking reality and turning it on its head a bit and twisting it yeah twisting it. okay uh, and yeah. and exemplifying uh, and and you know it, it, the the absurdity has to has to come out in a real satire i mean i've often thought that you know a lot of things that are considered satire are really just parodies mm-hmm. and satire is a is a form that you shouldn't be invited to the cocktail party you shouldn't be invited to the you right. know, to the to the establishment gatherings after you do a satire. They should be angry, <laughs> angry be, and very worried. Yeah, that you're taking and it notes. It should never be partisan. It should it should be mm-hmm. looking at both sides, right, and satirizing both sides, right. Um, and so uh, you know, I got the chance to shoot Bob Roberts in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, uh, in '91. And um, so just for uh, younger people, maybe who haven't seen it, which uh, it's easy to to get and to stream and watch and whatever. But tell the the, the story of essentially it's a, a, a folk musician <laughs> uh, who uh, is a Republican running for the Senate in Pennsylvania. Uh, he's a, uh, a very rich businessman who travels around on a bus um, with a, a team of an, uh, economic uh, ad- advisors, right? They're making millions and millions of dollars as they're on this campaign. Uh, you know, calling in trades to Japan in the middle while they're, of the while night. they're on the campaign bus. Yes, and uh, he also has a penchant for beauty pageants. So, successful businessman slash entertainer with a penchant for beauty pageants. Wow, that's. Why would anybody believe that? Didn't, well, while you're writing it, weren't you thinking, okay, this is really we're 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 gilding the uh, lily here a little bit too much here. Uh, this this could never ever happen because great satire works best when it has a large kernel of truth in it. You know that you all of the indications were there at the time. Uh, it was you know, and it just needed to be you know the story needed to be uh, told. Um, Wow. Yeah, and we were lucky enough to get Gore Vidal to play the person I was running against, and uh, right. and he gives uh, some beautiful uh, soliloquies on on what it is to to try to ex- uh, survive in American politics. Right. Yeah. So, um, well, anyway, so the, so this becomes an instant kind of uh, cult classic film, and people. Uh, Anybody who cared about anything loved this film, and, and well, you know this. I mean, it was uh, it, but but I'm guessing it didn't get a lot of love from the powers that be because clearly this was such a that you, this film this film essentially um, comes out after eight years of Reagan and maybe three two three years of, of the first Bush mm-hmm. uh, when this uh, and it's a year before Clinton. So it actually right? comes out in '92, right? Comes out the, so during, right during the, the campaign. Yeah. So it comes out right during the campaign. Yeah. And um, so this is on everybody's mind, but still, you're 25 years at this point ahead, before a uh, a business a businessman <laughs> who owns beauty pageants is running for president of the United States. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we've I've never seen him with a guitar, so. Well, <clears throat> probably can't play one, but yeah, um, but yeah. yeah. So, so, so you see the importance of satire, though. But it's got to be done right. I mean, it's it's you're right. The stuff that's just parody. I think it's why a lot of comedians these days are having a hard time trying to satirize that which already seems like living satire. Yes. Like, how do you take what we're witnessing to that next level? Well, I've actually just written a script. 
Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> I was up in Boston uh, shooting this thing called Castle Rock, and I needed I needed something else to do. And so every time I had a day off or a couple extra hours, I'd sit down, and I had a apartment overlooking uh, Boston Common. So, you know, it's where Crispus Attucks was killed, where the revolution started uh, that made uh, uh, an independent nation. And... Um, uh, so I started writing this uh, this satire about what is happening now, not not about Trump, but really about just this rampant id, yeah, that is unashamed, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I, I find that very actually. I'm more interested right now, less interested in Trump. There's not much more to say about that. There's just really one job in my mind to do this year regarding him. But the but that which gave us Trump, yes, that yes isn't being written about talked about satirized uh it's there's and i think that's really much more interesting and makes everybody sort of culpable not just people on the right or republicans but you know liberals democrats what were we doing what were we thinking uh so i'm not i'm (laughs) you're in the middle of writing this but i'm just saying that i'm just so excited to hear that this is happening yeah. And um, now I just has, have to convince a, uh, 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 an insane billionaire to give me some money. Oh, that. <laughs> but, but seriously, though, these days, a movie like that with the technology that we have and we use can be made for, you know, you don't need a hundred million dollars. No, 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 no. We don't need a hundred million dollars by any stretch of the imagination. Right. Just need one willing maniac. Yeah. yeah. One. Okay. Well, some of them are listening right now. Uh, is there a number we give them? <laughs> not that we're not doing a telethon, but I'm just saying we just need one. No, there are there are real there are good people. Oh yes, yes. I mean, I got my financing this way for my last film, where I just asked somebody who had a lot of money, but a really good person, and he just said yes in ten minutes. He said yes, and I didn't have to worry about money for the rest of the film that's so awesome yeah so you're, gonna, you're gonna give me that guy's name i can give you <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna talk <laughs> yes no he had he had he had uh, i think had f- financed maybe a dozen films he just and he liked it and it's and it, and it was a way for him to express himself because he's not a, he's not a writer he's not an actor he's not whatever but i i you know this you run across people and sometimes the people that you would least expect it to help you who want to be part of this um who don't want the culture to die who 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 you know would support theater in our public schools i bring that i brought that up at the beginning about new york city and the reason i said yes i'd be on this committee uh, rebecca miller the director uh her dad is arthur miller the the um because she said she said (laughs) new york city the theater capital of the country I forgot what the number was now, but it's something like there's now only a quarter of of the uh, public schools in New York City have a theater or drama teacher actually teaching theater or drama. Wow. And that how if it was that bad here in the theater capital, it's it got to be worse. And of course, it is across the country. Mm-hmm. So she and, and, the, and uh, the people, her family and friends or whatever on a mission to good for her to try and fix this and it's um i have to say you know my experiences in the theater over the last 10 years have been so extraordinary first of all it's one of the last places on earth that you can gather a a bunch of strangers together in in a dark room 
ask them to turn their cell phones off, and they will, right. and be with you for two hours as you tell a story. Uh, it's, you know, the way we train at the Actors Gang is inclusive of, of the audience. Uh, I had a great teacher named Georges Bigot who, he said, uh, this is what theater is all about. It's about the relationship between an audience, a live audience, and, and the actor on stage. But never, never assume, George said, never assume that anyone in your audience could afford this ticket. Right. And always assume they paid their last dollar for it. Right, right. Every single person out there in the audience. And then, on top of that, they had to walk here because they couldn't afford the bus fare. Wow. That's the kind of investment you have to have as an actor when you step onto stage. It's an important uh, alliance. It's, it's a, it's a mm. sacred alliance. Yeah. Which dates back to the origins of theater which was in the Greeks where it was uh, an important event that talked about what the relationship was, the moral relationship of man, the, the relationship uh, of hubris and the man and God and, and what happens when you cross uh, against uh, mm -hmm. uh, your, your nature and, 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 and go against uh, the, the gods. Um, so... And it was also a way, theater, for artists to maybe say things they couldn't say, weren't allowed to say in society or with the kind of um, political structure that existed where essentially there was a king or a strong man, whatever. But you could get away. You could get The Greeks had figured this out a long time ago. Yeah. You could get, you could lay shit in there. Yeah. And people in the audience are going to go, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And then you have the Commedia dell'arte where the Italians would travel from town to town doing these shows in the public squares. They weren't in theaters. They weren't right. invited into the cultural, you know, right, right. elite. They were they would do their shows and they would do shows that were essentially stories about uh, you know, two people that were trying to be together and were being kept from each other because of social circumstance. Uh, mm -hmm. One, the, the boy wasn't wealthy enough to marry the rich girl. That was the, the groundwork of it, but on top of that, they, there was a, a social satire where they would take on power structures. And then, part of the reason it was a traveling company was because they had to get the hell out of town after they finished that story. Right. A lot right. of guts, these people. Right. And, this, and all the Commedia dell'arte com companies came out of universities. Right. It was, they were smart people that were engaging the world. And Shakespeare was incredibly influenced by the, by the Commedia dell'arte stories right. and the whole spirit of that. And so when we're working, that uh, we train in the Commedia dell'arte, we, we, we use those stock characters. Um, and uh, so what we've been able to do is, is tour some of our shows in the past 10 years uh, all over the world in five continents. And uh, we've been in 40 U.S. states uh, over our history. Mm, wow. But we were doing a show in China, in, in Shanghai, a show I had written called Harlequino, Onto Freedom. And then at the end of the play, this, the character, the actor that's playing Harlequino, steps out of character and starts to, to comment on, on, on the, what the story is and, and what the struggle is between power uh, and the artist. And the play is stopped by, uh, this is in the play, the play mm, is stopped mm. by an agent of the state who says, you're not saying the right words. Mm. Uh, go back to the script. And they start the play again and Harlequino can't control himself and he goes off again and 
the agent of the state comes in, arrests him, takes mm, him out, mm. and says to the rest of the actors, continue the play. And so the actors start to try to continue the play. Our first performance in China, this is two days after Trump is elected, the uh, actors start to try to do the play after the guy's arrested. One of the other actors puts up their hands in solidarity and walks off the stage. At that point, the entire Shanghai audience erupts in applause. Wow. Uh-oh. And then the next actor puts up their hands mm. and walks off stage. Mm. The audience applauds again. And I, well, I was puts up when you say puts up their hands because it, it like they're being arrested. Like, they're like hands up, don't shoot. Hands up, don't shoot. And I will not perform in this play anymore. Mm. I'm walking off. Mm. And to, to hear the the reaction of that Shanghai audience was just so deeply inspiring. It's like we were doing something. We were allowing them an outlet yeah. to to celebrate mm. defiance of the state, mm. solidarity between artists, and. Um, I thought, well, well, we're going to get censored here. We're going to get kicked out of this country. We went down to Beijing. We got censored, but not for that. We got censored for a bunch of dick jokes that were in <laughs> one of the scenes. And who wow. the, the translator had told me, listen, you know, I was having a hard time translating this because, uh, the, you know, the government wouldn't, really wouldn't allow me to, to use any kind of animal, animal imagery in, mm. in, the, in, mm. in, the, in the skit. Right. So they allowed vegetables. They allowed, <laughs> they allowed you know, kind of jokes about zucchinis and <laughs> right, right. And uh, we got censored for that. They they made us, uh, you know, they. That's didn't. actually very very wise uh, advice, though. Too, um, if you want to get the political thing that you're worried about being censored through, give them something even worse, <laughs> like things to do that are sexual or whatever, and then so all, all their focus will go to that, and they won't think about. But but you know in a way that you I mean you made a movie about this uh, the um, uh, back in the 30s where there's a theater group Cradle of Rock yeah. the Cradle of Rock and it was a, a WPA Roosevelt uh, thing where they were they helped to fund theater groups and writers and whatever but in this particular uh, play this this it was a it gone too far and, and across certain lines. And it's a it's a it's a beautiful film. I don't know if you think about it much these days, but thank it's, you. I, I do. It's yeah. uh, it's uh, <clears throat> really again another one of your prescient works, twenty to thirty years uh, before its time. But um, if if uh, uh, the cradle will rock, if anybody, if you have a chance to to watch it, it's. Uh, it's um it's about is it the, but it's based on a real story it's a true story it's yeah. a true story and what what moved me about that story was it wasn't a big political act it was a one woman it was one woman who was an actress when it came time for her song to be sung she was being forbidden from singing it and she stands up in the audience and starts to sing that's a true story and i thought well that that was the hook for me is like the courage it took her she was basically risking her future you know she was right. going to get fired and she wasn't going to be able to work in theater but she said at that point she said no this is my song and i'm going to sing it and that power of the individual to to create a movement because after that all of the actors started to stand up in the audience and perform the play they were forbidden by the union by the way yeah. from performing the play on stage so they said okay well we'll perform it in the audience right right <laughs> right and so, this, was this the group our orson welles was yeah, part of and yeah, uh, yeah. this was uh when he was a young young man yeah he was a, a maverick director a young man um and like this is 21 22 yeah. years old and before yeah. the mercury theater Right. Um, wow. Uh, and um, so, this you know, th this kind of um, energy, this kind of um, live, um, potent you know, 
energy is something I've been addicted to my entire life. The the power of theater, the possibility of of uh, reaching the hearts and minds of people in a live event. Uh, you know, it's and we we're starting to experience this. Uh, we have uh, when we were running New, new Colossus. Yeah, let's talk about this because yeah. your new your new play uh, that you and the actors gang are doing is called the New Colossus. Yes, and um, so go ahead and, and, and tell us about. Um, how this came to be and and you're going to take this around the country starting like now january 28th in right. charlotte wow yeah. okay um, so so um so uh, about four years ago i was i was uh you know i have uh, quite a few members of my company that english is a second language for and so uh i had been encouraging them to use their um uh, origin languages in workshops um to you know to express emotion um, more viscerally, rather than having to go through the head and translate into English first, I just said encourage them this just to start talking your own language. You know, what, we're going to understand it because we'll understand the honesty of the emotion. And so uh, we, I asked them. You know, when I understood how potent this force was of their talent, I asked them to develop a story. And so we started working. On, uh, I asked them all to tell the story of their ancestors' immigration to the United States mm, mm. Um, or, uh, other, uh, or other places. Um, you know, and so, and I, uh, the first time we did it, there was no English in it at all. And we had 12 people from 12 different countries speaking 12 different languages, telling the stories of 12 different eras from 1868 to 2017. Mm. And they're all on a journey to get away from a threat right uh, and uh, to um, and then wind up waiting for a boat and then the boat comes and they wind up pleading to get on this boat mm. now this what we've come to understand is that this story is us this is our country right uh, at the end of this uh, the play um, the audience is asked a question should we let them in Mm. And they have to decide. The actual audience. Yes. In the theater. Yes. And, and they've witnessed uh, uh, an hour and a half of, of this journey. And, uh, and then after that, I come out, if I'm there, and I will be there for the tour, for all the dates. And I ask, uh, you know, uh, I say, listen, we want to hear about you. We want to hear your story. First of all, is there anyone uh, in the audience that is descended from the indigenous population? Mm. And you know, a couple of hands will come up. And mm -hmm. What what nation? You know, mm -hmm. Navajo, etc. Mm -hmm. Is there anyone in this audience who is descended from uh, ancestors that were brought here against their will? African Americans mm -hmm. raise their hands. Uh, where from? Don't know. Mm. What year? Don't know. Right. The one of our original sins that we've never atoned for. That's right. Then I ask: Are there any um, refugees in the audience? couple hands come up where from what year any immigrants in the audience where from what year mm -hmm. now are there any uh, sons or daughters of immigrants or refugees hands come up where from what year grandsons granddaughters of immigrants or refugees more hands come up right. great grandsons great granddaughters of immigrants or refugees more hands up. anyone back to the Mayfield before you know it everyone has raised their hand right and in, in, in our little theater in in Los Angeles we would put a map up in the lobby and when people came in we asked them to put little magnetic pins on where they're from an entire world was represented 
every night in our in wow. the theater in Los Angeles. Wow, you take and a it, picture of that out in the lobby each night, yeah. so you have a whole cavalcade of yeah. photos of this. Wow. Yeah, and you realize this is who you know. This is it's obvious what this is what makes our country so special. Right. I don't think you could do that anywhere else in the world and have such a diversity of people in one room right. experiencing something together. And so then, uh, uh, you know, I ask, listen, uh, uh, anyone who want to tell their story? Does anyone want to tell their ancestors' story? And oh my God, the stories we hear are just insanely moving. One woman uh, says, uh, uh, my grandmother was eight years old on a boat from Europe. Landed in New York City, alone, eight years old, wow. with a photograph of a relative, no address, and somehow found her, her family. Wow. Eight years old. We're descended from that. Yeah. Then another woman says, I want to tell you a story about an uh, American soldier. He's liberating a concentration camp with his uh, battalion in, uh, in Buchenwald, Germany. And this soldier sees this woman, frail. Uh, emaciated, one of the uh, people that had been in, incarcerated in this concentration camp. And he says, she, she says, he, she started to falter like she was going to fall. And the soldier, a private, starts running to catch her. And the sergeant yells at him, stand down, soldier, that's not what we're doing right now. Disobeys his sergeant, gets to the woman, catches her before she falls, mm. takes her to the field hospital, mm. gets in trouble. When he's out of trouble, goes to visit her mm. in the field hospital. This woman said to me, that was my mother and my father. Wow. There are so many amazing stories out there. And that's one of the things that I'm really looking forward to. We're going out into the country to, to hear these stories, to tell our story, but then to hear the stories that, uh, that everyone has. If you think about it, we are united by this. This is something, and one of the reasons I want to do it right now is because we've got to find things that, that remind us that we have a lot in common. And one of those things is our, our DNA. We are, the, we are descended from people that survived. First of all, we are descended from people that decided, no, I will not put up with this. I will right. not put up with this famine. I will not put up with this religious oppression. I will not put up with fascism or Nazism. I am leaving. The right. people that stayed didn't make it. That DNA doesn't exist anymore. Right. But these people have the courage to do it and they make this journey and then they have the strength to survive that journey. And then they have the strength to survive oftentimes arduous journeys across the ocean. Many people died. We're not descended from that DNA. Then they arrive in this new country with nothing and somehow survive and make a life and create a family. We're descended from that DNA. That's pretty special. And that's something that we should be thinking about when we're thinking about immigration now, is, is, is that we share this with those people that are being separated from their families at the border. This is us. This is who we are. Maybe it's three generations ago. Maybe it's last week. But it's the same thing. It's the same will that, that, tell, that says within, that says, I cannot, I cannot tolerate. This poverty, this violence, this uh, oppression anymore. I need freedom. People that walk from Guatemala to this border yeah. of ours, you know, to and survive it. And we did a we did a uh, matinee out in Los Angeles for uh, high school, hmm. 
And the first time our, our map was, you know, was all from one place, one area, mm. Mexico, Central America, and South America. Mm. And we had a talk that day about heroism, about what it is to be a hero and what the hero's story is. And we talked about, you know, your parents, your grandparents that, that risked their lives to seek a better life. Right. The ones that are being demonized right now, the ones that are being talked about as if they're trying to steal something from us. Oh, yeah. No, that's yeah. not the story. It's a story. It's a, it's a mythic story. It's a story of heroism. They survived it. They made a better life. They made the choice to go. They survived it. And they created you. That's a hero. Think about your parents that way. Think about your grandparents that way. Let's mm -hmm. rewrite that story. I'm so uh, moved by what you just said for the last five or ten minutes here um the this is um it's such a different and yet the most honest way to look at this and we don't we don't we're not taught this way we're not we don't embrace it the way as you were just describing this the the heroism the courage of those who made it if you've walked 500 to a thousand miles because you want to be in this country that's how bad that you want to be my neighbor i actually want you as my neighbor because you're the kind of person that's got the strength and the wherewithal, not just to survive, but to make a better world. You're starting just with your own family. You've got your, you've got a baby you've got, and then you're willing to risk the baby being taken out of your arms and put into a cage. I just, um, wow. I'm so overcome by this, what you just described. And it just to think that people get to, I, I mean, first of all, can I go on tour with you? <laughs> I, just, I, I don't want to be, I mean, I won't be in it. I just want to sit in the audience every night. I'm telling you, it, and experience it has this. really moved me. Uh, we went down to South America in January last year and did it in uh, Santiago, Chile and Concepcion, Chile and in Buenos Aires uh, in Argentina. And it's a similar story of immigration. Uh, you know, they, South America has a similar story. Um, but one of the things that was most moving was in Concepcion, when I asked the question, are, is there any refugees in the audience? Mm. And we had heard stories about, you know, there's, there's a resentment about the refugees down here, from, mainly from Haiti. And, uh, you know, and, um, and one woman stands up and she says, yes, I'm a refugee. And I said, where from? And she says, uh, Palestine. And the entire audience erupts in applause. Mm. Yeah. And then an, another person stands up and says, I'm from Haiti. And they... Entire audience erupts in applause. Applause of wow. welcoming. Wow. Welcome, welcome to our country. We're wow. strong enough to 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 embrace you, to invite you in. Really amazing. Really amazing. Yeah. And, and um, you know, we we are going we're going to go all over the country. You know, we're going to Charlotte, North Carolina, Schenectady, New York, Detroit, Michigan, mm. Seattle, Washington, Durango, Colorado, Iowa City, uh, Iowa. Folsom, California, and Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, we'll be out from uh, January 25th through April 11th. So all those cities you just mentioned, boy, that that is really a diver diverse cross-section of this country. And places where I would not think you, Tim Robbins, uh, and your work and everything would be going to Durango. Mm -hmm. Colorado or uh, Iowa City did you say yeah, uh, yeah Iowa City um, no, no offense these are actually these are wonderful places but um, they rarely get to experience what you just described what they're going to experience in this in this production 
that, why did you make this? I mean, you you know, you 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 could have just done Steppenwolf, Kennedy Center, <laughs> the Village <laughs> here. Uh, what's the thinking uh, with this? I mean, is it? Uh, um, it could just be that uh, these are the only people that would have you, um, or there's something else going on. Because when you go through, a, when you say once you get to the second city of Schenectady, you're like, okay, what the fuck is going on here? No offense again. Mm-hmm. To, in fact, that's all props to Schenectady. It's the people that invited us, and 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 this is the what's what's uh, awesome about it is the opportunity to talk to a cross section of people. And uh, listen, I am I have. Whenever I've traveled in the United States, I have, you know, even in the in what, what one would consider the most galvanized time, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the uh, when you and I were, you know, catching crap for opposing the Iraq War, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. everyone said how dangerous it might be out there for me. Mm-hmm. I was, I, I never, never uh, right. felt at, at risk. Right. The people of this country are good people. And, they are. And, That's and right. Even if they disagree with you, yeah. they respect your right. Right. To speak. That is the majority of that the people. That is the majority of the people. That's correct. And hate, by the way, is uh, very hard to do in person. Very easy to do abstractly. Very easy to sit in your key- keyboard and write hateful things to another person. Right. But very difficult to do eye to eye. And at the end of the day, people are human beings. And, you know, we have to respect the, our differences or we'll never be able to move forward. During that time after the Iraq War, I, I um, put together a tour, essentially a one-man show. And but I, it was like a more of a Rolling Thunder review where I had I would have musicians uh, come with me to certain cities. So, um, but I did a sixty uh, sixty-city tour in forty-two days, and um, but and some cities, uh, Raid the uh, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine mm-hmm. would be with me, and or other places would be comedians. Um, you know, a couple cities, it was the Goo Goo Dolls. Uh, I mean, it was, it was really a variety. Eagle Mortensen came, you know, just different people did this. And it was, um, um, I think they're really coming to take us away now. I'm like, <laughs> if, anybody, if anybody listening to this on, on your whatever device you're listening to it, uh, I, I do not have a sound effects person. Uh, we are actually uh, in the, the middle of... You know, uh, when we're doing this uh, show, the yeah, New Colossus yeah, in yeah. Los Angeles? Yeah. The actors are trained so that if that happens, yeah. they all hide. So oh. the whole place stops, and they hide until the sirens go away. Right. If you and I just ducked under this table right now, though, <laughs> nobody would see it. It wouldn't have the same effect with, just with the sound. But, no, that's that's very funny, actually. Um, I'm going to use that uh, next time. <laughs> the person will be sitting in the chair where you're at, and all of a sudden, I'll just dive under the table. And they'll be like, well, 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 what's going on? Turn the lights out. Turn the lights out. Do I, is there something I don't know? <laughs> Um, well, yes, you, the, what you don't know is, or what you should know is, they will, if we're doing our work, they will eventually come for you. So, um, but hopefully we're far away from that uh, at this point. Uh, I believe we are, um, but, but I'm saying, what I was saying is, even then, even during it, I remember going down to San Antonio, Texas, in, during the heat, heart of, uh, heat of uh, this problem, to uh, the Final Four, mm. a kind of, uh, you know, athletic crowd, mm-hmm. and not one person said anything. I know. I actually was there too, because uh, it was Detroit. Uh, oh, that's right. Playing San Antonio, yeah. and I went to I think Game Seven, 
And uh, so my buddies and I from Michigan, we you know we're deep, you know Pistons fans. So oh no, no, this was the Final Four. But, but oh, Final Four. But, but oh, that, okay. That happened, yeah, I think that happened yes. around the same year. It was yeah. around the same. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it was. And uh, but we were afraid to go because you know Fahrenheit nine eleven had just come out. And but it was again no, that's not. And I in the Slacker tour I did is what I, we call it the Slacker tour of these sixty cities. The largest crowd was in Gainesville, Florida. Wow. Not San Francisco. Not Boston. It was it was the last place I expected it uh, in 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 Florida, but that proved to me what you just said that this country we live in is not exactly what what some people are afraid that we've become and we and yes we have become something that we need to fix, but um, but generally um, I mean that's why I have so much hope in this election year. I'm not you know yes I I do understand <clears throat> that Trump can win again he will not ever win the popular vote i believe this you know if hillary won by three million this time the democrat i've been saying this is going to win by four to five million but could still lose mm -hmm. the electoral college trump mm -hmm. could still win uh with the electoral college mm -hmm. but um but you know i'm not i'm not going to live on that kind of fear i'm, I'm going to i'm going to trust that my fellow americans um uh know what's what and just enough of them have had it with what they've with what they've seen um, and I don't think I think I don't think I'm being foolish about this. I and mean, this is why I, I, I told the people on my first podcast I stopped working on the film I was working on because it wasn't going to come out till next October. And that just I wasn't going to spend this whole year, you know, someplace making the movie, and then three weeks before the election you get to watch it. I, I felt like I needed to do something all year long, and so thus the, out of that came this podcast, uh, so that I could talk, you know, every week more than once a week uh, to people and talk about the things that they're thinking about and what can we all do together? How can we organize? How can we use audio as an organizing tool? Um, that's kind of the what's behind this Rumble um, podcast here. This, what we need is we need more discussion. We need more um, open forum. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's, that, was, that is the purpose of this. And, um, um, you, you know, it. Um, what you were saying about the theater too. I just, I'm sorry to keep going back to this, but I, I just want to encourage people to support their local public schools and their drama departments, and 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 give kids the chance to have their voice heard on a stage um, like this. It's and in like you say, the last few years, if you've gone to th any kind of theater around the country, there are some amazing things going on. I've, I've seen some amazing. Uh, plays and and uh, one woman shows and uh, all this stuff and it um, it's also a place of community. Yes, that's right. It's a place where you can gather with other people, like a town you, square. Yeah, that with you a roof. do not know necessarily, and you can create community through your shared laughter, through your shared emotion, yeah, through your grief, through your fear, and through your anger. It's um, um, a, a, a very uh, healing thing to be able to sit in a, a room with other people yeah. and experience a, a, a human story together. I decided to do my own Broadway show like two, three years ago. It was a one-man show that I, I wrote, although it had, it had a few you know, characters that came in and out of it. Um, but, Tim, it was like, now you've done this since high school, but I was like, I was so every night, 
I couldn't wait to get to the theater. You know, they, they had to beg me to do 12 weeks of it. And I'm like, oh, God, 12 weeks, the same thing every night, you know. And seriously, by the end of the second week, I wanted to do 20 weeks <laughs> because yeah. I had just going down 7th Avenue. It would just I would just well up with this sort of I cannot believe I get to do this. I'm going to stand on a stage. There's 900 people in my living room. Yeah. And and I'm going to have essentially a conversation with them, even though I'm going to do, be doing most of the talking. But it but the re, but and every night every cliche I heard every night was different. No two audiences were the same. Yeah. But it was so profoundly powerful for me at you know at this point in life to be able to to do that and to be able to have that experience. I know exactly what you're talking about here. I'm, it, I feel bad that it took so long to actually listen to you talk about this stuff. And, and, and people are probably wondering right now, well, you got Tim Robbins and Michael Moore there, and you guys haven't even talked politics. But <laughs> but part of this, too, I think, is because, what, what, first of all, is there anything else we need to say uh, politically? I mean, no, I'm serious. <laughs> Hasn't it all been said? And, and by the way, aren't the people listening, haven't they got it figured out? On some level, right? Well, maybe maybe they they don't, but that's okay too. You know, it's uh, it is okay. Yeah. Yes, I'm yes, I'm a I'm a huge supporter actually, not of the largest political party in this country, the non-voter party. Uh, it's a hundred million strong, and I do not put people down uh, if they don't vote. Uh, I actually see it as an act of civil disobedience because I know that most of them love this country, care deeply about what's going on, and have just checked out have had it, they can't take it anymore, whatever the reason is, um, or just believe that they've been so let down by politicians and people in power, whatever it is, they they are actually refusing to participate in something that they see as a, that that's actually a greater evil than, than wanting to be a participant anymore in as a voter. Now, I'm not, of course, before everybody goes crazy, I'm not encouraging people to stay home and not vote. If anything, I'm spending the bulk of this year um uh you know i mean I'm, I'm i think i think if everyone listening right now got three non-voters to vote boom boom right everything changes oh absolutely yes that's it so it, it just and and the way to i think get them to vote is not to shame them not to go to the reason ask them why they and there's they're going to tell you reasons and you're going to go oh yeah that's true oh yeah that's true too and you're like okay now what Okay, what can we do? Because actually, I feel kind of the same way that you feel about all this, say, to the non-voter. What, how can we together work our way out of this? Because the way it's going, if it continues, is a very slippery slope. You know, I, I can't, still can't get out of my head the first time Stephen Colbert introduced Trump when he came out on the show during the campaign. And Colbert goes, ladies and gentlemen, the last president of the United States, <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> I'm like it was so funny but it was also like oh whoa that's a thought yeah i think these people uh there are many people that that just need a reason you know uh to to vote uh and you know perhaps they're what they don't want to hear is they don't want to hear that they they have an obligation to vote for someone because someone is worse you know, uh, right. I think they need a, a something to believe in. Right. And I would encourage people that even if you don't want to vote for whoever's on the top of the ticket, that there are so many initiatives that citizens yes. put together right. that can really change things. We've seen this in California in the last few years. You know, there, there have been some draconian sentencing of drug offenders for the last 
30 years in this country, you know, when we criminalized uh, certain behavior that hadn't been criminalized before, winding up with the highest incarceration rate in the world. And a lot of those people were nonviolent offenders getting long sentences, minimum sentencing, the yes. removing discretion from the judge. You know, the judge couldn't, in a particular instance, say, hey, I, I think this guy shouldn't get 30 years. He had to do it. Right. And so we've had initiatives on the ballot in California that have changed that and have made 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 us revisit what we've done in the past. And, for example, we were putting a lot of uh, kids away. Right. People convicted when they were 15, 16 years old to life in prison without parole. Right. And we passed a measure a few years ago that changed that. Right. And it made those those kids uh, who are now adults eligible for parole. Right. And we work in the prison system with the actors getting out there and we see the change. We see the hope now reinfused right. in people wanting to uh, make their lives, first of all, in prison safer, but then also trying to figure out how to survive when they get out. Right. And the California had eliminated arts and corrections uh, when we first started our program. And we just asked where we were working. We were asked for the key in and the key out. And we didn't ask for funding or anything like that. Kept our programs going and somehow got some traction with the Department of Corrections. And now we're in 13 prisons on 15 yards mm. doing uh, um, uh, theater programs with, with people. We've had incredible success, 89% reduction in, in prison infractions for people that have been through our program and a, a 10% recidivism rate compared to a 60% recidivism rate in the state of California. It works. Arts works. It, it taps them into something that reminds them of their humanity. It reminds them that they they have potential. And, and, and when the prison system is taking this seriously, the fact that they're going to get out and they, they, why do you want someone to leave a prison with less tools to deal with their emotions than when they came in? Isn't that just going to lead to more crime on the outside? Once they've started to understand this, things are starting to really change. And that started with initiatives on a ballot. And so I'd encourage everyone to, to be aware that you can change things in that way. You know, legalization right. of marijuana has happened because of ballot measures. That's right. Well, in Michigan uh, in 2018, a state that had, had voted for Trump in 2016 by just 10 or 11,000 votes, um, you know, a lot of us thought we've got to get ballot initiatives going here. We got to follow the California example, and uh, and so to to um, uh, bring out those communities uh, that that feel the most affected by this. And so uh, the youth vote almost doubled from the last off-year election by putting the, the marijuana, uh, and we made it. It passed by like sixty, nearly sixty percent in Michigan. And but we also had a ballot proposal to make it a crime to gerrymander or voter suppress. And we put it in our constitution, and that passed by like 61, 62 mm. percent uh, to to end any kind of gerrymandering and to take the drawing of the maps out of the hands of politicians and put it in the hands of citizens. And oh man, did I mean the turnout was incredible! And by having such a great turnout, instead of pushing, hey, come on and vote for this politician, the result was once in the booth. This is what we ended with. It was all Republicans in Lansing in the state capitol that ran the state, the governor and all that. No Republicans won. All removed. Democrats. So we we have people listen to the podcast. They know they've, I've been talking about this, but I just want to encourage there's still time to do ballot initiatives. We're just at the beginning of the year for November. There is time to get the signatures and time to get this in your states. You can do ballot proposals to raise the minimum, minimum wage. 
uh, uh, climate uh, change, uh, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment, if your state hasn't passed it yet, uh, we could do that. Criminal justice reform. Yes, yeah, all kinds of, look at the state of Florida in, in, in 2018. The, the Florida, again, another Trump state, voted to allow felons who had, you know, previously, even though they were out of prison, couldn't vote. Gave them their right to vote back. Mm-hmm. Just happened in New Jersey too. Yeah, no, this is this. I'm so glad you brought this up. This is such an important way to to bring out the vote because, and what we ended up with in Lansing is we have a woman a governor, we have a black lieutenant governor, uh, a, a lesbian attorney general, and a single mom who's the secretary of state. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what's running Michigan now, and we removed two Republicans who who are represented white suburban Detroit. They got moved out, and two women, two Democrat women, Democratic women, um, are, are now our members of Congress uh, there. So this does work um, to to get involved in other ways to go and convince people to come. But, but I love your idea. Just think of three people, three non-voters, um, and embrace them. Don't shame them. Embrace them. Listen to them. Don't tell them what to think either. Don't tell. No, no. Exactly. It's it's like I've been saying this on the so even you know I mean I support Bernie and I think I think you yeah. have come out also for for Bernie. But man, don't sit this out. These primaries. If you like Mayor Pete, go and vote for Mayor Pete. If you uh, are, have loved Biden for years, go vote for Biden. It'll go, I mean, just I just just you know now's the time to get involved. Because there is a bit of a variety of people that you could say, yeah, that person more closely aligns with the, what I believe. Just go. I'm, 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 I'm happy for that. I'll try and convince you why I think Bernie might be the best. But that, but to, yeah, to listen to me, you know, just mm-hmm. do do what you think is best. But but get in the pool. Everybody in the pool. Yeah. And and we're gonna have a better country. I'm convinced of that. If if we do that, so. Yeah. Um. Hey, just before you go. I, I, I hope you don't mind. I want to just I want to share this um, very kind story of you and and uh, something you did for me. Um, if you don't mind, okay. I don't know if you know what I'm referring to, but it was uh, the third day of the Iraq War, and I'm out in Los Angeles uh, because Bowling for Columbine had been nominated for Best Documentary for the Oscars, and there was a lot of talk: should they even have the Oscars? They were thinking of canceling it or shortening it. They were talking about actually not having the documentary category on because they were afraid possibly of any, they didn't want any, any politics or any disruption. And remember 70% of the country supported the invasion of Iraq and supported George W. Bush, a very high approval rating. And so I'm sitting there, I'm very nervous. I'm, you know, I'm kind of alone there in LA, uh, you know, with a, a couple family members, but, and, and you called me and um and said hey how would you like to uh, come over uh, to lunch this would be the day before the Oscars. come on over to lunch we're we're, we're actually uh, just around the corner uh from you know where i was and uh uh there in you know west hollywood and um and just come for lunch i'm gonna invite a few people and we could just you're probably trying to think of what to say in case you win and you know we can you know we can talk and you know, it was so i thought oh my god i felt so less alone I, and i come over to your to your place uh and and there was Around the table, <laughs> Sean Penn, Eddie Vedder, uh, this is going to be the biggest name-dropping thing of all time, Don Cheadle, Gore Vidal, uh, you, Susan, um, who else was there? Now, I can't try to remember. Clooney was there, too. George Clooney was there. And and so they. you all asked me, so what are you, if you do win, what are you thinking of, like, 
how to get through this alive. <laughs> and I said, I don't know. I'm just, I've been thinking about it and I just, I don't. And, and, uh, and so I said, well, what would you guys all do? And you went around, each of you went around the table and, and told me what your Oscar speech would be if it would be on this. Cause now the, the Oscars, this is going to be like the fifth night of the Iraq war when the Oscars are being held. Right. And it was so helpful to me just to just to feel a sense of community with people that cared. And you all had incredible Oscar speeches, by the way. I mean, I wish <laughs> I wish I taped it or whatever. You're you're um, in that. I think if I remember yours, uh, you had mentioned that you had gone to Catholic school and I had gone to Catholic school and you had said something. She's, you Maybe you remember this better than I do, but it was something about speaking to the morality of, of this. And then I, I remember sean saying that um he would take the oscar set it down on the stage look at it and just say thank you and then walk <laughs> walk away <laughs> clooney had some you know wackadoodle crazy f- hilarious idea and th- but then gore vidal speaks and then he starts quoting thomas jefferson and he gives me these incredible quotes of what to say in a time like this i just want I've, I've never really had a chance to thank you for that moment because then when I did win the next night and, of course, was booed off the stage <laughs> for saying, and really all I said was, is I invited my fellow nominees up. So all five films, I asked them all to come up and they came up and I said, look, we make nonfiction, but we live in fictitious times with a fictitious election results with a fictitious. Well, I don't even know. By that point, there was all the you know chaos and calamity in the in the uh, Kodak, what was called the Kodak Theater then. And, um, but um, I, uh, they, they shuffled me off the stage. Security was called. Um, Steve Martin's joke about Teamsters were now at this moment, right after like five minutes later, Teamsters were loading me in the trunk of their car. <laughs> <laughs> was not that far from the truth. <laughs> but you remember this day though, you, do, that, yeah, where I you do. had me over there for lunch. And, uh, um, and, and, you know, you all had had so much experience with all of this. And, uh, but it meant a lot to me. And, um, and I hung on to that over those next few days where it was brutal, brutal mm-hmm. going to LAX people yelling at me mm. and I'm, I'm, I'm carrying my oscar hoping that'll be some kind of a shield <laughs> getting on the plane but uh actually they made me they made me put it in the bag and when i got home and i got back i opened up the bag and there was one of those tsa slips in there and somebody had keyed the oscar <sighs> no way. up and down yes up and down up and down and 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 not even worried about it and proudly putting that TSA little slip of paper that says, you know, we went through your bag. Wow. So it, uh, but, but it meant a lot during that. It was a difficult time for me and, you know, the, all the death threats and everything was all. But that's when I decided to go on that tour. And that's when I saw in places like Gainesville, uh, Florida or Tempe, Arizona, you know, where people really stood and where they were. And maybe, yes, maybe the majority supported, but I knew eventually because Americans are good people, and maybe we're a bit of slow learners sometimes, but eventually we get it. And eventually, within two years, in, in, in 2006, the American people voted the Democrats into be, be, have both houses of Congress. Mm-hmm. So that was the American response. Mm-hmm. Um, they, people came around. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it always gives me this, not a false hope, but a real hope that what you know the work we do is important and we just have to keep at it and not get too overwhelmed i guess by it 
Yeah, and embrace uh, the diversity in our audiences. Absolutely. The diversity of opinion in our audience. Uh, that's all legit. And everyone's got their own story to tell. And that's why I'm looking forward to going on this tour. Yeah. No, oh, no. So I am actually, where, when are you in Detroit? Where are you? Uh, well, can I read the dates? Yeah. Do you mind doing that? Yeah. Oh, well, okay. So it would be, we're at the Knight Theater in Charlotte, North Carolina, January 28th through February 2nd. We're in the Proctor's Theater in Schenectady, New York, February 7th and 8th. Detroit, Michigan at the Music Hall, mm, February beautiful. 14th through 16th. Mm-hmm. Seattle, Washington at the Moore Theater, February 20th to 22nd. Durango, Colorado Community Concert Hall, February 25th and 26th. Iowa City, Iowa at the Hancher Auditorium, February 29th. Uh, Folsom, California, Stage 1, March 3rd and 4th. And Nashville, Tennessee at the James K. Polk Theater, April 9th through 11th. Wow. Wow, that's got to, and, and you'll be there. At, at I'll be you, there at all those. Wow, yeah. wow, wow, how exciting. And if people want to find out how to get tickets or whatever, they just uh, type in into their Google machine. Uh, uh, the New Colossus. The New Colossus or The Actors Gang. Or, yeah, or theactorsgang.com. Yeah, okay. And, uh, well, I'm definitely going to be at one of these. Uh, and uh, maybe Detroit. Um, but if I'm in New York, it's connected. Not that far. Yeah. Just an Amtrak right away. Yeah. I really want to thank you for for doing this. I want to thank you for all your wonderful work over the years. Um, so much of it inspiring. You must know the effect you've had on me just artistically in terms of not being afraid to go after and deal with difficult subjects that may be uncomfortable. But if people will put their toe in the water, it, just like with any piece of water that's cold, eventually in a few seconds or a few years, it's not so cold. Right. And it does get better. And I think what you've done very successfully is you 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 understand that when you're telling stories like this, that it's so important to have a sense of humor. Absolutely. And to have well, a lack of judgment for your audience. Absolutely. Yes. That I have felt that way from my very first film. And um, um, and I encourage people listening to this uh, to that one of the best things to rely on in times like this is your sense of humor. And, and also your sense of humanity for the people that you think are um, uh, in huge disagreement with you. This happens to me like sometimes when I'm sitting on the plane and, that, and the person next to me, I can see they're very uncomfortable because they, you mm-hmm. know, and they will eventually bring up on a, you know, they'll say I'm a Republican and then blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, you know, yeah, but the things that we disagree on, if we did a piece of paper, I'll let me put the line down the, agree disagree the things we disagree on is a much smaller list mm-hmm. than the absolutely. things we agree on absolutely we have more in common than not and so we can agree to disagree on you know abortion say uh you know if you don't believe in it you shouldn't have one um if you like guns and i don't uh i think you should be able to own a gun and be safe with it keep it safe and and you know there you know let's treat it like we would say a, a dog license maybe we, hmm. we, we let's treat it like we treat our dogs and our bicycles and other things <laughs> have to register maybe um but you know and if you're if you're against gay marriage don't get gay married you'll hate it you know just <laughs> stay the way you are but on all the things we agree on tim so many things there's so much common ground throughout the country nobody we, wants to drink dirty water nope everybody no. wants to breathe clean air we want a safer world for our children. All of that. We want good educations. We want health care. Yes. No matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, yeah. 
whatever you call yourself, or I mean, most people don't call themselves anything. I think they, they, they don't just. Uh, powers that be have been very clever. This is not just our country. This is throughout history, from time immemorial. Divide and conquer. Find ways to make people fight with each other. Mm-hmm. So they won't pay attention to us. Yeah, so we can get away with the stuff we're getting away with. Right. As long as they're fighting with each other, they're not going to notice what we're doing. Right. And it's very clever. It's uh, time-tested. It seems to work. But they've been doing that since the very, very early days of history. Right. Well, we have the power to not participate in that. We have to look past that to what unites us. Right. Thank you, Tim Robbins, uh, for being on Rumble uh, here uh, today. Uh, it's uh, a great honor uh, for me to have you in my little podcast studio. This used to be the guest bedroom. Uh, <laughs> no, no more guests <laughs> no for more, you. I know, I feel bad. I announced that on the first podcast, and I thought immediately family and friends are listening to this. And I'm like, I went out and I bought an air mattress. So please come see me um, if you know me. Uh, you can still stay here. But uh but uh, it's now, a, it's now a, a podcast room in an apartment that sits on top of a movie theater in, in uh, New York City. And I have the, I have the same thing that I'm, I'm building in my apartment in Michigan. So when I'm there, I'll do my podcast. And when I'm in New York, I, I do it here. So anyways, thank you so much. Uh, good luck with the new Colossus. Uh, I will be there. And uh, I encourage everybody uh, to come see this. It sounds like an incredible, um, cathartic uh, experience uh, to participate in, um, and uh, and um, I can't wait to see this uh, movie that you've written too. So, for that, uh, for that, the small sector of billionaires who are listening to this podcast, uh, it's a, it's a this is a low budget film, low budget, right? Yeah, we'll, we say, keep we'll keep it low. Yes, we'll keep it low. But this, I probably won't get paid. That's okay. Oh no, that's not okay. But 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 thank you for that. Thank. <laughs> You think you must have done this for well? You have done this for a long time. God bless you for it, and uh, and uh, thank you, and thank your parents too. That was uh, a great story to learn about them. them. Yes. Them. All right, everybody. We'll see you on the next uh, episode here of Rumble with Michael Moore, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. And thanks to everyone out there who's listening to this episode today. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate our underwriter today, Netflix, and the documentary Academy Award nominated American Factory. Thank you for supporting us, supporting my voice, and allowing people to hear the other voices on this podcast, Rumble with Michael Moore. I'll fly away, fly away. Bye.